I'm going to show you how great I am. This was our tiny tower. I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody. Hello and welcome to How to Take Over the World. This is Ben Wilson. This episode is part two of the life of Vladimir Putin. If you've not yet listened to part one, you'll want to go back to the last episode and do that. Before we jump into his biography, I want to take care of a couple housekeeping items. The first is a huge thank you to my listeners. Uh, I just found out this week that we cracked the top 100 for history podcasts on iTunes. And that might not seem like a huge accomplishment, but there are literally thousands of podcasts just about history. And of the top 100, most of them have major backers like NPR or associated with major radio or TV personalities. And yet, we made it all the way up to 88 is where it peaked. And this is just from me posting about it one time on Facebook and one time on Instagram. Uh, no advertising, no marketing, no publicity. Everything has just been word of mouth from you guys. And we're just barely getting started. So thank you so much for everything you guys are doing to share it. Uh, we're only going higher. We're going straight to the top. Um, but thanks and, and keep it up. Keep sharing. Uh, last thing is I wanted to let you guys know that I'm putting out a weekly newsletter. It's a roundup of the news that matters every week. I try and skip over the clickbait and the short-term crises and highlight the long-term trends that are actually changing the world around us. It's only once a week. I think you guys will love it. So if you go to httotw.com, the first thing you'll see is a sign up for the newsletter. So just go put your email there and uh, you'll be signed up and it comes every Wednesday. So I hope you will. And with that, on to the life of Vladimir Putin. Last episode, we left off with Putin being named president by Boris Yeltsin and then winning election as president three months later. Now, I'm going to backtrack slightly to talk about one of the craziest incidents in the rise of Vladimir Putin. It's something of a mystery and something a lot of people don't want to talk about, but I think it reveals a lot about the ruthlessness of Vladimir Putin. Remember, I talked about the war in Chechnya. Well, that started as a low-level conflict in Chechnya, not a full-scale war. You've got some separatists and they're making some noise and the Russians are trying to keep a lid on it. But then these separatists leave Chechnya and invade a different region of Russia called Dagestan. Well, Russia responds and starts bombing him, and this is August 1999. Boris Yeltsin is still president, but he's pretty old and frail, so he delegates responsibility for the conflict to his prime minister, a guy by the name of Sergei Stepashin. At this point, Putin is still head of the FSB. So President Yeltsin says the actions undertaken by his prime minister um, aren't good enough. Uh, he hasn't been aggressive enough in coming after the rebels, so he fires that prime minister and names Vladimir Putin as prime minister. And Putin is really aggressive in his tactics, and it doesn't take long before he has the rebels on the run out of Dagestan and back in Chechnya. Now to Putin, it was paramount to totally destroy the rebels. He was afraid the country would come apart like Yugoslavia. Uh, he thought if they didn't put an immediate and emphatic end to all this, people would be emboldened by it and Russia would come apart piece by piece and eventually cease to exist. So he favored going into Chechnya and stamping out this rebellion at its source. But the public wasn't so sure. They didn't like the war at all. They didn't want to see it escalate. So Putin was hamstrung. But then he seemingly got a gift from the Chechen rebels. 
In the early morning of September 4th, 1999, there was an enormous explosion that leveled an apartment building in the Russian town of Bunaksk. Probably getting that wrong. Uh, in Dagestan. It killed 64 people and injured 133 others. Five days later, on September 9th, there was a similar bombing in an apartment building in Moscow, which killed 94 people and injured 249. On September 13th, there was another bombing in Moscow, and this one killed 118. Then on September 16th, there was a bombing in Volgodonsk, which killed 18 people and injured 288. Now remember, these were Muslim separatists who were fighting in Dagestan and Chechnya, and these bombings are kind of, well, I mean, it's not unheard of for Islamic terrorists to bomb civilians, right? So we have our culprit, open and shut. It was the Chechens, and that's exactly what the Russian government is saying. This was carried out by Chechen Islamic terrorists. The public is in a full-blown panic, as you can imagine. They're also in a rage. Uh, they're really, really upset. Countries tend to rally around when they're being attacked. And so support for the war in Chechnya is actually increasing. Three days later, after the, the bombing on Volgodonsk, on September 23rd, something very strange happens. In the early hours of the morning, a bus driver in a city called Ryazan, which is southeast of Moscow, noticed a white car parked outside his apartment building. There was a young woman standing outside the car, a man inside the car, and another man who had apparently been taking something inside the apartment building. And he was on edge because of the previous bombings, and so he called the local police. And when the police showed up and investigated, the car was gone, but they found a massive bomb in the basement of the apartment building. The apartment building was evacuated, the local bomb squad was called in, and they were able to defuse the bomb before it blew up, thankfully. Public officials commended the citizens of Riazan on their vigilance. They had been on the lookout, and by so doing, they had stopped a terrorist attack. They had caught these people. The man who saw the car and the would-be terrorists was able to give a detailed description of what they looked like. And then good luck struck again when a local telephone operator overheard a caller telling someone, you, you should split up and do your best to get out of the city undetected. And that sounds pretty incriminating, right? That sounds like that's, that's probably the bombers. So they think, we have our terrorists, they're able to trace the call, and they show up to arrest them. They find three people, they match the description provided by the bus driver, but there's one problem. They aren't Chechen rebels, they aren't even Chechen, they're ethnic Russians. And furthermore, they are badge-carrying FSB agents. Once word of this gets out... The director of the FSB talks to some reporters and tells them, oh, actually, the whole thing uh, was a training exercise to make sure everyone was prepared for bombings like this, and they passed, they did a great job, good job, everyone, nothing to see here. But no one seemed to know about this, not the local mayor, not the governor, not the local police, not the bomb squad. In fact, the local bomb squad that had been called in to defuse the bomb undercut this whole story. They swore that they had tested the chemicals, and it truly was a live bomb. And not only that, but the chemical that they tested positive in this bomb was RDX, also known as hexogen, which is a chemical produced by the Russian military, and it's extremely difficult to acquire on the black market. So all in all, this government explanation of this was just a test, that's why it was carried out by FSB agents, doesn't seem to add up at all. And so you have to ask yourself, is it possible that Putin had been orchestrating these bombings in order to boost his popularity and give him cover for an all-out war in Chechnya. 
I don't think it's only possible. I think it's likely. I don't, I'm not the kind of guy who believes in conspiracy theories. I don't believe 9-11 was an inside job. I think there was only one shooter who killed JFK. All of that. But to me, the evidence seems to indicate that the Russian government was behind the bombings of late 1999. There are some people who suggest that, okay, maybe it was the FSB, but Putin himself wasn't directly involved in the planning. Maybe it was rogue elements within the FSB. That also seems pretty unlikely to me. The bombings didn't occur before Putin became prime minister, and no one benefited from it more than he did. I think in all likelihood, Putin bombed hundreds of Russians in order to legitimize military actions in Chechnya that he thought were necessary to preserve Russia. That is how ruthless Vladimir Putin is. If you want to achieve what others are not or have not been able to achieve, you either have to do things that others can't do by being extremely smart or talented, or you can do what others won't do by being ruthless and scrupulous. And Putin is an example of the latter. Nevertheless, this incident did not have serious repercussions for Putin. People didn't really want to believe that their government had been involved with something like this. Putin's former finance minister, Mikhail Kazyanov, summed it up pretty well. When asked if the Russian government was behind the attacks, he said, quote, I don't know. I don't know, and I don't want to believe that it could be true. And that was the attitude basically everyone took. They didn't want to believe, so they didn't. Well, anyway, after this, as discussed previously, he rolls into Chechnya with the full force of the Russian military and wages an all-out war. And at first, it's popular. He rides this wave of popularity and wins election as president of Russia in March of 2000. Now, he's a complete political novice. He's just been elected for the first time to anything. He had never won an election. He hadn't won an election as dog catcher. He had always been appointed. He was never really the head boss. So from someone like that, you might expect a tepid, hesitant, modest agenda starting out. And you'd be wrong. His inauguration sets the tone. The previous inaugurations of the only other president, Boris Yeltsin, had been held in a hideous Soviet-era legislative building in the Kremlin. If you've ever seen Soviet architecture, it is uniformly very, very ugly. And Yeltsin had chosen this because the only alternative is to reach back and hold the inauguration in a royal palace from the pre-Soviet era. And that's a problem because you don't want to seem aristocratic or corrupt. It didn't seem democratic to hold your inauguration in a royal palace. But Putin doesn't care. He holds his inauguration in a beautiful palace built for Tsar Nicholas I in the Kremlin. And afterwards, for good measure, he has a giant military parade. And that was a risky move, but it's a good one. It turns out the Russian people don't care about all this history. Putin looks powerful, and they like that. And this is something Putin does well for his entire career. It's not just the rich trappings of power, the palaces and such, but he also goes out of his way to appear physically strong. You've probably seen some of the pictures. He's gone to nature reserves to play with tigers, and there was a staged photo op where he went diving in the Black Sea and discovered some ancient Greek urns which obviously had been placed there before for him to discover. He's also had himself filmed doing judo, which he's pretty good at. And there's some great unintentional comedy out there too, and there, with all these pictures of him riding around on horses without his shirt on and the like. And something I think people take for granted is this very ancient, tribal, very basic desire we have to follow strong, powerful men. 
in the developed Western world, we laugh when we see stuff like this. We think we're better than that. We laugh when we see, um, you know, Kim Jong-un claiming that he shot 34 under par in his first round ever playing golf. And yet, really, we're not much different. The presidential motorcade has 25 vehicles in it. Do you think those are all really necessary? I mean, they all have an official function, I'm sure. But really, a part of having a motorcade that big is projecting power, seeming powerful. Also, every president I can remember in the United States has had pieces written about them in which they show off and embellish their physical strength and prowess. George Bush made sure reporters knew how often he went mountain biking and how much he could bench press. Barack Obama also made sure to leak how much he could bench press, which was apparently over 200 pounds. I mean, think about this. This is the position of President of the United States of America. And the men who inhabit the position want us to know how much they can lift. We truly are just slightly smarter cavemen. Another example, uh, before the most recent presidential election, Donald Trump's doctor said that if he were elected, he would be the healthiest person ever elected president. And so, no, we're not much better than Russia or North Korea in that way. And it's worth keeping in mind, as sad as it is, making yourself look powerful can lend you a huge advantage. I mean, look at Jeff Bezos. Go ahead and Google the words, Jeff Bezos, glow up. If you don't understand what that means, it's okay, it's a Twitter thing, but Google those words, Jeff Bezos, glow up. If you do, you'll see this photo of Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, uh, back when he founded Amazon, and he's this pencil-necked, balding nerd. And then next to it, it has a photo of him now. His biceps are huge. His neck is huge. He's wearing this tight-fitting shirt and a vest over it. You could honestly cast him in a movie to be like a ruthless Eastern European mercenary. Or Putin. You could cast him in a movie to be Putin. And that tells you something. So again, this sort of crude appeal to basic human nature matters even today. It's important to seem powerful. And I should mention, I think this goes for women as well. You might not be as physically large as men, but you can still wrap yourself in the trappings of power and do everything you can to project that. Okay, but back to Putin. So his agenda was as ambitious as his inauguration was. First thing he does is take over the press. There are these TV channels that mock him mercilessly. They create caricatures of this tiny little bald man who is too small and too weak to run Russia. And obviously that stands in total contrast to this image he's presenting of himself, which is a big problem for him. So he sends in the police, makes some arrests, cooks up some charges, and in very short order, the Russian state takes control of all three major television networks in Russia. Now, I should note, these charges that he's making are technically true. The 90s in Russia were wild. Communism was collapsing, and the new economic order was still struggling to find its footing, and it was totally chaotic. I mean, think if you can about, you know, the type of guy or girl who grows up in a very, very tightly controlled house and is never allowed to do much or experience or explore much, never does anything wrong, and they go to college for the first time and no more chains, no more leash, and they just go wild, right? They party all the time, they become alcoholics, and it's totally unhealthy. Well, that was, the, that was Russia in the 90s. They had been in the Soviet Union. They hadn't known anything about the world. Everything had been censored. Uh, they didn't have foreign music, foreign TV, foreign movies, and they weren't able to engage in commerce. And all of a sudden, leash is gone, go wild, do whatever you want. And people did. 
It was chaotic. It was anarchy. You took what you could get. And so everyone who was involved in business was guilty of tax evasion, bribery, and a handful of other crimes as well. And I mean everyone. So yes, these men are guilty of crimes, but so is everyone else. And that's not why they're being arrested. They're being arrested for pissing off Putin, for broadcasting things that he didn't like. One of the reasons, though, that he's able to do this is because he has proof on everyone. When he was head of the FSB, he headed up an effort to make sure that the FSB had total access to financial information throughout the economy. At the time, no one thought much of it. But now that he's president, Putin has the proof to prosecute whomever he wants. That is planning. Knowledge really is power. It's not just a cliche. And Putin was a spy, so he understood that better than most people. And he's one of the best ever at leveraging knowledge asymmetries. He knows everything about everyone. He's always gathering intelligence. That's why he places so much emphasis on hacking uh, now in, in 2018. And he's really good at keeping enemies and opponents from knowing too much about him. He's very secretive. And that has really benefited him. Again, knowledge asymmetry, knowing as much as you can about everyone else and not letting them know anything about you. Another thing Putin does early on is build a political team out of a circle of people he could trust. To him, trust is as important as your ability, your capabilities. He keeps his friends extremely close to him. His government becomes known as the Petersburg clan, which was sort of an epithet from the political elite in Moscow who were used to holding all the power. Now they have this upstart who comes in who's bringing in all his friends from St. Petersburg who more often than not are not bureaucrats. They're like judo teachers and people that he just knew. But he wants to be surrounded by people who he knows he can trust, so he brings all his St. Petersburg people with him. He also begins to modernize the military. This also, you know, ticks off some people from the old guard in Moscow because he's eliminating corruption and firing people. But he's doing so in order to create a more efficient, more streamlined, more modern military. One quick thing about all these people that he's, you know, pissing off in his first year in office. It reminds me of when I was a teacher's assistant in college. In the first few weeks, the professor that I was TAing for gave me a stack of essays and said, grade these. And I bring them back. She looks at a few and says, I want you to take all of these essays and mark down every single one by at least a letter grade. And I protested. I said, look, they're just getting their feet under them. They don't really know what our expectations are yet. Doesn't this seem a little bit harsh? Maybe we should show some leniency. And she says, oh, what? And go hard on them later? She said, if you show them leniency now, when you do finally raise the standards, they'll feel confused and betrayed. But if you are hard on them now, and maybe a little more lenient later on, they'll be grateful. And she was right. And she was a really good, really successful, and surprisingly well-liked professor, considering you know, how hard she was on her students. So if you have to take care of any unpleasantness, it's best to do it early. And anytime you come into a new position, start out as tough, demanding, and uncompromising. You can always show leniency later and people will show more gratitude for it rather than starting lenient and having to get tough later and really confusing people and, and having them feel betrayed. And that's exactly what Putin is doing here. He's starting out as the hard ass. He's taking care of the uncomfortable stuff first. Not all of his initial projects are so tough. His biggest accomplishment is to pass some economic reforms, which were cheered by a lot of people, including big business. 
he institutes a flat income tax of 13% and cuts corporate tax rates from 35 to 24%. This very flat tax rate has very few loopholes. It's fairer. It's easier to hold people accountable and make sure that they're actually paying their taxes. He also creates stable rules around buying and selling land, and he passes some common sense employment legislation. And this is some pretty deft management of the economy. Add to that the fact that oil prices were rapidly rising and Russia has a ton of oil and you have a really good scenario for economic development for in Russia and by extension, a really good scenario for Vladimir Putin. In 1999, the year before he took office, GDP in Russia grew by 5%. In 2000, his first year actually in office, GDP doubled. Unemployment goes down, income goes up, the Russian government is able to pay off its debt ahead of schedule. Things seem to be going really well. At the same time that he's doing all this, Russia is still trying to figure out its identity. Do we use Soviet era symbols? Do we use pre-Soviet symbols? And when I say symbols, I mean very basic stuff. This is a new country. It's not the Soviet Union anymore. It's Russia for the first time. So what is our flag? What are our colors? What's our national anthem? What kind of uniforms do our soldiers wear? That kind of stuff. And this is a tough decision. Communism has been horrible and it ended in disaster. But before the Soviet Union, they had the czars who were like emperors and they were pretty horrible too. There was a ton of inequality. The Russian aristocracy was fabulously wealthy while the peasantry was horribly impoverished and oppressed. It was basically like slavery. So looking back to then does not seem like a great option either. So where do you turn? Do you just come up with entirely new symbols? Well, Putin makes the wise decision to just sort of embrace all of it. It might seem contradictory to embrace the stylings both of the czars and the people who brutally murdered the czars and their whole family, but it actually made sense to a lot of people. It was all part of Russian history. He was saying, these divisions don't matter. We're not czarist. We're not Soviet. We're Russians. And he was embracing Russia and saying, we can be proud of our history. And that's huge. Russians felt really pessimistic. They had been part of something big in the Soviet Union and it had collapsed. Now they were thrust into a global market economy and that was new and uncomfortable for them. And they were clearly far behind the rest of the world. Add to that, everyone was telling them they were evil. You know, they're for the first time getting exposed to Western media and they're seeing all this stuff that says Russians are the bad guys. And in the midst of all that, Putin comes in and says, we're going to be proud of our history and who we are. So he embraces the double eagle, which is a pre-Soviet symbol, but also the red banner, which is Soviet. He embraces the Soviet national anthem, but he chooses to give it new words. It's this hodgepodge of symbolism that has no clear ideological lines other than to say, it's all Russian and we embrace Russia. People have an innate desire to believe that they belong to something greater than themselves. Before Putin, Yeltsin had been embarrassed by both their Soviet and their pre-Soviet past. He didn't want to embrace any of it, but Putin embraces all of it. And in so doing, he allows people to believe in themselves and believe in Russia. On a few occasions, he uses the phrase, anyone who does not regret the collapse of the Soviet Union has no heart. And anyone who wants to see it recreated in its former shape has no brain. It's clever. It's a little strange to basically be saying, we love our past, but we have no desire to go back to it. But it's a message that really resonates. People like to believe that they are inherently important because of their identity, and he's giving them that. Well, all of this makes him immensely popular, but the good times don't last forever. 
In 2003, the economy is no longer growing quite as quickly as it used to, and there's an increasing number of terrorist attacks. These attacks start with a terrorist attack at a theater in Moscow in late 2002. 130 people die in the incident, and the government made some major blunders during it. There are further terrorist attacks throughout 2013, and between the terrorism, the war in Chechnya, which was no longer going as well, and the economy, which was no longer growing as quickly as it used to, some people start to think that Putin might be somewhat vulnerable. Not vulnerable enough to actually lose re-election, but maybe they could put some checks on him. There's a Russian billionaire named Khodorkovsky, and he has this vision of a first-world democratic open Russia. And his plan is to fund opposition parties in Russia's parliament, which is called the Duma. He figures that they can put a check on Putin, and he can use them to help craft this open Russia that he's envisioning. Envisioning. There was going to be a parliamentary election in 2003, so Putin wouldn't be up for your re-election, but there would be an election to see if his party would win in the Duma. And Khodorkovsky figures this is his chance to make a splash. So he's funding candidates and flying around, attending events and giving speeches. Well, that's not a good idea. It turns out Putin was not open to the idea of being challenged and having meaningful opposition. So he has Khodorkovsky jailed and he seizes his business. The Russian people actually love this. They don't get too caught up in the details. They just think, hey, he's sticking it to the oligarchs, which they like. They didn't like these guys who had, in their view, gotten unfairly rich and were now billionaires. So jailing Khodorkovsky actually bumps Putin's popularity before the parliamentary election. He doesn't want to leave anything to chance, so he also rigs the election, and unsurprisingly, his party wins handily. The writing is on the wall now. No one is to challenge Putin. The election in 2004 for the presidency is another snooze fest. The opposition can barely find someone to run against Putin. It's never going to be close, but again, Putin rigs it just to be sure. In some cases, telling district officials exactly what the vote total is to be in their area. Now, despite re-election, everything isn't gravy in 2004. The economy is still just kind of fine, good, not great, and terrorist attacks are still going on. And for Putin, things were about to get worse. In Russia, September 1st is the traditional first day of school. It's called Day of Knowledge, and it's sort of a holiday. Parents and grandparents join their children at the first day of school. Everyone dresses in nice clothes, and students bring flowers or other gifts for their teachers. Beslan is a majority Christian town in southern Russia, pretty close to Chechnya. On the morning of September 1st, 2004, the local school was full of new students and parents who had come with them. The day started out as normal, with teachers, students, and parents meeting and celebrating. And then at 9 a.m., about 40 masked men suddenly ran onto the school grounds, firing AK-47s in the air, and herded 800 people into the school gymnasium, which they wired with homemade bombs. They made demands that Russian troops pull out of Chechnya and grant it complete independence. Of course, that was never going to happen. The Russian military sets up a perimeter around the school and for three days, they besieged the school while they tried to negotiate with the terrorists. These terrorists were not messing around. On the first day, they started killing people one by one and throwing their bodies out of the gymnasium. And for these three days, the negotiations are really tense. The Russian military would intermittently hear gunfire and explosions go off inside the gymnasium, but not wanting to make the situation worse, they weren't moving and... The negotiations aren't really going anywhere. And then finally, on the third day, all hell broke loose. It's hard to know exactly what happened. The official count is this. 
unexpectedly and out of nowhere, there were two massive explosions inside the gymnasium. Hostages started trying to escape through the holes in the walls created by these explosions, and then the terrorists started firing at the escaping hostages. Government forces returned fire, and it devolved into a 10-hour gunfight. When the smoke cleared, 334 hostages were dead, 186 of them children. 10 Russian commandos were also killed. 30 terrorists were dead, but it was believed that some of them had escaped. I said that was the official account of what happened. This is disputed by some first-hand witnesses who say that Russian soldiers actually fired first. It's impossible to know exactly what went down, but in any case, it was a debacle by the Russian government, and it appeared to be a political disaster for Putin. So what would you do in a moment like this? I mean, imagine, this could be your lowest point as a leader if you were the president of Russia. It's like if you combine the governmental ineptitude of Katrina with the consequences of a miniature 9-11. Do you apologize for the loss of so many Russian citizens and just hope that the political hit you take isn't too severe? Would you hunker down and just wait it out? Well, Putin actually manages to turn the situation into an advantage. He flies down to Beslan and he gives a speech televised to the whole country. In it, he doesn't apologize or accept responsibility he just reflects on the nature of Russia as a whole. I'll quote part of what he says. Quote, There have been many tragic pages and difficult trials in the history of Russia. Today we are living in conditions formed after the disintegration of a huge, great country. The country which unfortunately turned out to be non-viable in the conditions of a rapidly changing world. Today, however, despite all difficulties, we managed to preserve the nucleus of that giant, the Soviet Union, we called the new country the Russian Federation. We all expected changes for the better, but found ourselves absolutely unprepared for much that changed in our lives. The question is why? We live in conditions of a transitional economy and a political system that do not correspond to the development of society. We live in conditions of aggravated internal conflicts and ethnic conflicts that before were harshly suppressed by the governing ideology. We stopped paying due attention to issues of defense and security. We allowed corruption to affect the judiciary and law enforcement systems. In addition to that, our country, which once had one of the mightiest systems of protecting its borders, suddenly found itself unprotected. We demonstrated weakness, and the weak are beaten. So now Putin has reframed the whole situation. He's basically saying, hey, this kind of crap didn't happen when we were young and Russia was strong. If Russia is strong again, we won't have to deal with this anymore, and I'm going to make us strong again. People accept this, and rather than the Beslan debacle dragging him down, Putin's popularity once again goes up. So you might be wondering, okay, well then, what are these reforms that are going to strengthen Russia? Is he going to beef up the military, improve intelligence services? Nope. The solution was to remove the last semblances of representative democracy in Russia. Ten days after the Beslan siege, Putin abolished elections for governors and mayors. He would now be appointing all of them. And he also changed the composition of the parliament in such a way that it would be easier for him to control going forward. 2004 marked the end of democratic rule in Russia and the beginning of Putin's complete control. However, we still haven't reached the peak of Putin's power and influence. While there were no longer major media outlets that dared to be too critical of him, there were still individuals who could investigate, report, and become whistleblowers, usually doing so to non-Russian media. That changed on October 7th, 2006, when Anna Politkovskaya, 
an investigative journalist who had been highly critical of Putin, was shot dead in her apartment building. About six weeks later, Alexander Litvinenko, a Russian emigre to London who was friends with Anna, died of a mysterious illness. An investigation soon thereafter revealed that he had been poisoned with a rare and very deadly radioactive isotope. Litvinenko had fled from Russia in 2000 after attempting to expose corruption in the FSB. Over the years, he had accused Putin of corruption, funding terrorism, and, most recently, of authorizing the murder of Anna Politkovskaya. These were not the only mysterious deaths with a link to Putin, not even close. However, these murders are when people start to piece together that Putin might be behind them. He vigorously denied any involvement, as you might expect, arguing that the charges that he conspired to have them murdered caused him more headaches than either of them had caused him in life. He's saying, I have no incentive to murder these people. They weren't causing me any real problems. In fact, they're causing me more problems now that they're dead because people think I did it. I don't think that that's a very compelling argument. The fact is, Putin did have something to gain from their, from their assassinations. Taking control of television stations only gets you so far in terms of controlling the national conversation. Yes, maybe the deaths did cause him some short-term problems, but they also created an environment where individuals are afraid to speak out against Putin for fear of what might happen to them. It made his control over the national conversation in Russia complete. While Putin's grip on information in Russia was reaching new heights, his official political control was about to end. In Russia's constitution, presidents were limited to two terms, and so he wouldn't be able to run again in 2008. He had to pick a successor. The successor he ended up choosing was a very mild-mannered bureaucrat and confidant by the name of Dmitry Medvedev. He had been serving as the first deputy prime minister. He was in his early 40s, a committed Democrat who enjoyed American music and a pretty gentle and open guy. So at the party convention, Putin announces that Medvedev will take over as president in 2008. I mean, okay, technically he was just announcing that he would be the party nominee for president, but at this point, everyone knows what that means. So Medvedev gets up and surprises everyone by saying that for continuity's sake, he is nominating Vladimir Putin as prime minister. There are some mixed feelings about this. On the one hand, Medvedev legitimately seemed like a new kind of leader, one that could usher in real progress in Russia in terms of ending corruption, allowing a free and open press, and extending friendly relations to the West. So it seemed like Putin might lose his grip, lose power. On the other hand, with Putin taking the second most powerful position in the country and watching Medvedev's every move, maybe nothing would really change. And people were anxious to see. Well, Medvedev is elected president in 2008 and Putin becomes prime minister. And early on, it seems like there's a glimmer of hope that Medvedev might be truly independent of Putin and be able to act on his own. But then those hopes were squashed in just a matter of months. The turning point occurred in summer of 2008 when the country of Georgia commenced an attack on the region of South Ossetia. Now, South Ossetia is a region of Georgia. So this is the Georgian military invading another region of Georgia, kind of like the Russians going into Chechnya. The big difference is South Ossetia is a province that is mostly ethnically Russian and had sought to distance itself from Georgia and to strengthen ties with Russia. So the Georgian government feels, hey, we're losing control of this region. They might be trying to actually leave and join Russia, so they send in the military. Well, when Georgia finally does attack, the Russian commander near the area calls Medvedev and says, what do you want me to do? After all, Medvedev is the president. And what does Medvedev do when he gets this call? He calls Putin. 
Putin was at the Beijing Olympics at the time and couldn't be reached. And Medvedev just keeps trying to reach him. And finally, after four hours, he can't get a hold of Putin, so he's got to make a decision. And so he says, uh, yeah, go ahead, send the troops into Georgia, into South Ossetia. Well, when Putin finally finds out about this, he's enraged by Medvedev's indecisiveness and lack of resolve. Putin was the first one to actually make a statement, which he made in China at the Olympics, stating that Russia would respond with force. He claimed that Russian citizens who were living in Georgia needed to be protected. And so they do. The Russian military responds with force. They send in more troops and invade and control South Ossetia. Obviously, Russia doesn't have a lot of trouble with the Georgian military, so they easily push out the Georgian troops and seize control. And to this day, South Ossetia is a semi-autonomous region that Georgia claims is still theirs, but Russia actually governs, as is another province uh, where the same thing was happening called Abkhazia. After that, Putin publicly maintained the charade that Medvedev was the commander-in-chief, at least somewhat, but privately he ridiculed him and he took full control of the country. At that point, Putin decided that handing over power was basically a failed experiment. So he orchestrated the writing of a change to the constitution that would extend presidential terms to six years and allow him to serve for more terms in office. So in 2012, Putin returned to the presidency, and he's been serving in that capacity ever since. And in all likelihood, he's going to win re-election for a fourth term that will keep him serving until 2024. And so that's basically it. That's the end of the road in terms of Putin's political control in Russia. It's likely that he will never give up control until he's extremely old and frail or possibly until he dies. Some protests have bubbled up from time to time, but nothing has with any seriousness challenged his rule. And it seems like nothing will, at least for the foreseeable future. Now, before we get to the analysis portion of all this, you know, his tactics, habits, and strategies, let's take a look at two other things, his personal wealth and how he's been able to shape international events. I talked earlier about how Putin uses knowledge asymmetry. He's a spy at heart. He gets as much information as he can, and at the same time, he's as secretive as possible about his own life. I bring this up because when it comes to Putin's personal assets, no one really has any idea. Some say he's the richest man in Europe with over $40 billion. I've seen some say he's the richest man in the world with over $100 billion. In 2012, an official documentation, Putin claimed his own income at about $113,000. I've seen estimates of $2 billion and a few hundred million. The truth is, no one knows. And also the truth is, it doesn't matter. And why not? Well, let me give you an example. Putin has constructed a massive residence on the Black Sea. It's beautiful. It looks like a royal palace that could have been built 300 years ago, except presumably, you know, with Wi-Fi and such. It's a massive complex. It's got a theater, a church, swimming pools, heliports, parks, apartments for his bodyguards and staff, and more. We can see it all with satellite photos, and the estimated cost to construct it was a billion dollars. So Putin must have at least a billion dollars if he built himself a billion dollar home, right? Well, no. Technically, he didn't build it, and technically he doesn't own it. It's owned by an oligarch, a billionaire, who is very close to Putin and depends on him for his fortune. Some of the construction was funded with government funds, and yet by all accounts, it is Putin's private residence, one of 20 that he owns. But he doesn't need to technically own it on paper in order for it to be his. I think it's likely that Putin's official net worth if you were able to see it, might be quite low. It's possibly less than a billion dollars. 
but he doesn't need the money. He basically owns the Russian government, and he's surrounded by billionaire oligarchs who have to do his bidding or risk having their fortunes seized from them, and worse. Because of his power, Putin basically has as much money as he wants. Ironically, there's some truth to what Putin said when someone asked him if the reports about his wealth are true. He said, quote, I am the wealthiest man, not just in Europe, but in the whole world. I collect emotions. I am wealthy in that the people of Russia have twice entrusted me with the leadership of a great nation such as Russia. I believe that is my greatest wealth. To which you can only respond, uh, yeah, sure, something like that. I should mention that in terms of building up this wealth among his friends that he can now access whenever he wants, he went the slow and secret route. From what people have been able to turn up in official documentation, which is not much, it appears he has been siphoning money off for himself and his friends and associates since his days in St. Petersburg. But rather than starting with a splash and getting a lot of money early, it's been little by little, and it took a while for people to notice, but now there are billions of dollars at his access. Now, in terms of international relations, Putin has improved markedly over time. In 2004 and 2005, he attempted an intervention in Ukraine in order to install a president there who would be loyal to Russia, and it backfired terribly. Since then, Putin has done a number of things remarkably well and learned from that experience. The first is to take advantage of international dissatisfaction with the USA's hegemonic place in the international order. Early in his rule, Putin had a complex relationship with the United States. Uh, he would sometimes seek closer ties and more stable relations with the U.S., and in the wake of September 11th, 2001, he did his best to actually open a, a friendly hand to the U.S. That changed when President Bush failed to listen to his objections and built anti-missile bases in the Czech Republic and Poland, and also when he invaded Iraq. That animosity has only solidified over the years, as Putin has realized that many countries are dissatisfied with the USA, and intimidated and frightened by the fact that no one can really do anything to stop the U.S., so Putin has set himself up as the USA's main opponent, and that has given him a lot of clout. It's made him really popular both at home and in many places abroad. Obviously not the US, but many other places that are dissatisfied with the US now have a very favorable opinion of Vladimir Putin and of Russia, and that gives him better leverage to work with them. The high watermark for Putin's international influence came in Syria in 2011. Syria is an old ally of Russia's. In 2011, a civil war broke out in Syria. A coalition of rebels, some of them moderate and some of them extreme, including ISIS, was fighting against the Syrian government and sometimes against each other. The U.S. was covertly supporting the rebels, and Putin decided to strongly support Assad, and, which was the government that was in charge in Syria. He not only funded and provided arms to the Syrian government, but he embedded troops with the Syrian troops. And this put the U.S. in a very difficult situation. If we want to help the rebels by bombing the Syrian government forces, well, we'd have to watch out because what if we accidentally bomb Russian troops who are with them? Are we willing to start World War III over Syria? So this limited the U.S. involvement, and it was effective. You know, the USA was trying to support these rebels, but they failed. Uh, Assad, the guy that, that Putin was supporting, uh, is still in charge today, and it's looking like the tides of the civil war has turned, and he will continue. To lead Syria. So when people call Vladimir Putin the most powerful man in the world, and more than a few have, this is in part what they are talking about. If he was able to defeat the U.S. in a proxy war and keep his favored regime in charge there, 
then who could credibly claim to be more powerful than that? Well, that's where I'm going to end my narrative and go into analysis. As in every episode, there are a number of things I haven't covered, like Russia's seizure of Crimea, Edward Snowden taking refuge in Moscow, the Russian cyber attack on Estonia, the Sochi Olympics, his divorce from his wife, his embrace of religious orthodoxy, and more. But as you know by now, this isn't meant to be a complete summary of Putin's life, but rather an evaluation of what made him great. Last episode, I talked about a number of elements of his greatness, like focus and, and more general strategies and work habits. I won't go over those again. The main thing I want to touch upon this time is his communication strategy. Most people have the wrong model for how you persuade people. The traditional model is basically this. People look at the world and try to figure out what's true. When they think something is true because of the evidence, they believe it. I don't think this is Putin's model. His model basically goes like this. If people want to believe something and they're able to believe something, then they will believe it. And this definitely isn't exclusive to Vladimir Putin. You see many of the world's great persuaders using this type of model. With this method, you should spend less time convincing people of what is true and more time getting them to want to believe you. Using this strategy has allowed Putin to get away with a lot. Has he had journalists murdered? Probably. But most people in Russia don't care. Why? Because they don't want to believe it. They believe that Putin is on their side, that he stands for a resurgent and strong Russia. So he doesn't need to convince them that the evidence is there, that he didn't murder these people. He just needs to give them the ability to believe he didn't have those journalists murdered. Okay? People don't need to actually believe something is true. They need the ability to believe it and the desire to believe it. Putin has used this a number of times. Uh, for example, when he said he was arresting media moguls and seizing their television stations because of tax evasion and fraud, or how he has maintained that he is democratically elected despite clear evidence of election rigging since 2004, or his claims that all of these journalists who investigate him who have ended up dead, he had nothing to do with it and bears no responsibility. The next obvious question is, well, then why do the Russian people want to believe him? As I have said, you have to want to believe someone and be able to believe them. So why do they want to believe him? And the ability to get people to want to believe you is more of an art than a science, but there are a few keys to how Putin has done it. The first is to project power. We've already talked a little bit about this, but he seems powerful and people have an innate desire to follow that. And so they do. The second is that he inspires pride. Putin has made people proud to be Russian again. I think of the way Steve Jobs inspired pride by creating a lifestyle brand. If you had a Mac, you were someone who thought different and appreciated aesthetic beauty. So you need to inspire pride. I'm sure my Android user listeners will be happy that I just compared Vladimir Putin to Steve Jobs. Uh, a third element of it is be a trusted advocate. People will want to believe you if they believe you have their best interests at heart and will do everything in your power to fight for those interests. Putin's pitch to the Russian people has never been, I will do the right thing, the moral thing. It's always been, I will do what is best for you. So three things to get people to want to believe you. Project power, inspire pride, and be a trusted advocate. After that, you just have to give them the ability to believe you in your story, and they will. Okay, well, that's basically it. I know this story doesn't have a great ending, and that's because... Um, Putin's still alive and he's still working and there's more of this story to be told and we'll see how it plays out. 
Um, just to close up, one last story. I want to tell a story about Vladimir Putin's father. Remember, his father grew up in St. Petersburg relatively poor, and he lived that way basically his whole life. He was just an average Russian man with little ambition. When his son became president for the first time, he was already old and frail and on his deathbed. And as he lay close to death, he saw the news that his son had just become president. And with what were close to his last words, he said, My son is like a czar. That does it for this week's episode. And by the way, that word that Putin's father used, czar, you know where that comes from? The Russian word czar, which is actually pronounced more like kazar in Russian, means emperor. And it was derived from the Gothic kaiser, which was derived from the Latin word Caesar. So the word czar is literally derived from the word for Caesar. Isn't that fascinating? Isn't it amazing that a man who lived 2,000 years ago, Julius Caesar, his name still means emperor? If you haven't figured it out yet, I'm trying to tease my next episode, which is going to be about the Roman emperor Julius Caesar. I hope you'll join me as we discuss his life. Until then, thanks for listening.